A Simple Prop A Memoir of Group Captain Neil McInnes by Jay Smith Read by Ayub Koti Chapter 1 The road from the United Nations field headquarters to the last operational airport in Mabenda was lined with skulls. For 10 kilometers, alternating every 25 feet left to right, the convoy of exiting peacekeepers passed another grisly reminder of their failure. Each skull was picked clean, bleached white, and mounted on a four-foot staff in the dirt, just so the eyeless sockets would greet each vehicle as it rolled up the two-lane rutted dirt road. The macabre signposts had been placed there in the last few days, symbolizing the new government's victory over both their rival Matsi tribe and the international community. Each skull was just one of a million victims of the Hazambi nation over the past 24 months. The skulls were a final insult to the 100 international forces that had spent two years trying desperately to stop the systemic murder of the Matsi people. Outside the gates of the UN headquarters in Mogatambe, the first 20 skulls to greet them had been dipped to the brow in blue paint to remind the departing forces of how many blue helmets had fallen to the Hazambi in their futile efforts. Flight Lieutenant Neil McInnes of the Royal Air Force drove the lead truck down what his men were calling the road to surrender. It made him the first target of opportunity in a line of ten trucks, surrounded by big Volvo truck windows. Not bulletproof, of course. McInnes felt like he was on display, sitting in one of those carnival contraptions waiting for some rube with a good arm to hit the bullseye and drop him into cold, dirty water. McInnes calculated it would be another 10 minutes until they reached the waiting cargo plane, followed by an 18-hour flight to a refuel near Cairo, and then to an American Air Force base in Germany. 18 hours in the air sounded like exquisite escape. He only wished he could be at the controls for it. In the briefing prior to their slow ride out, someone mentioned hearing that President Clinton was scheduled to appear at their destination in Germany, talking up NATO cooperation, and maybe adding former Warsaw Pact nations to the NATO roster. Major General Fastbeck suggested the American president might have dinner with the UNAMIM team and welcome them home. McInnes politely suggested that they would be lucky if the manager of the base officers' club extended them a bar tab. Major General Arnold Fastback, a bloated and useless Canadian Army throwaway, was nothing but delusional and weak. Back home, he'd protected the people of Alberta from moose and polar bear attacks, and kept the Soviets at bay with such skill and cunning that his superiors somehow felt he would be the man of all men to lead the charge against the atrocities carried out by the Hazambi. They even promoted him from brigadier to the more impressive-sounding rank of Major General, despite the fact that his command scope evaporated and his actual authority was strangled by a complicated, bureaucratic and sometimes contradictory resolution from the UN General Assembly. He wasn't a general in the military sense. He was more an administrator. 
den mother for the international forces serving under him. To McKinnis, Fastbeck's only skills of note were eating pastries and self-buggery. The only time he dared to step outside was during a Hazambi raid, and that was to hide inside an inoperable German tank. At one point, McKinnis had to explain to Fastbeck why their mission was even necessary. A hundred years ago, an ignorant European bureaucrat drew new political borders onto an old colonial map of Central Africa, pursuant to some long-forgotten treaty between European powers. Unfortunately, the person drawing the map only used obvious natural boundaries as his reference and did not take into account that he was tying two historically violent and mutually hateful peoples together under one government, supported it to a European power that couldn't give a tinker's kiss about them. The map was approved by the kind people who approve maps of places they'd never been, setting up a century of low-grade infighting that finally erupted after Mabenda claimed independence in 1991. When the Hazambi tribe took power in the northern part of the country, they did so with the support of American and British allies who wanted a taste of their natural resources buried under Hazambi land. Because the Matsi people were poor farmers with socialist leanings, at least as far as illiterate, uneducated people of the land could be said to understand Lenin and Marx, the hope was that the Hazambi would embrace their brothers and all would be well in the country. Or, if not, whatever. However, when Hollywood actors and moneyed lobbyists began pointing out that there was a hell of a lot of mass murder, rape and executions taking place in the Matsi parts of Mabenda, the international community responded by turning the matter over to the largest, most complex and schizophrenic organisation in the world. True to form, they selected a team of expendable and superfluous military professionals, made them wear silly hats, and sent them in to stand between the guns and hatchets of 11 million very angry people. 25 months later, McInnes could say that he had a profound hatred for everything about the People's Republic of Mabenda, and a seething hatred for the group commander who chose him as the Royal Air Force's contribution to the mission. His only joy through the previous two years was discovering and then sharing the native art of the region called Imigongo. In fact, McKinnis made sure that Group Commander Kyle Stanforth III received weekly packages containing colourful examples of pottery, sculpture and even commissioned drinkware for the commander made from processed and painted cow manure. McKinnis was happy to be free of his unofficial commanding officer. General Fastbeck was that most dangerous kind of bureaucratic authority, insecure and bitter. McInnes offended Fastbeck on a regular basis, not directly by being insubordinate or even highly critical, but by being competent. McInnes's entire job was to make sure that the men on the ground were provided the equipment they needed when they needed it. Given the bureaucratic nightmare of the United Nations supply chain, his mastery of that single mission was nothing short of supernatural. But in the process of doing his job well, it exposed many of the budgetary and logistical oversights. Bloody mistakes, really, made by his superior. McInnes was not the only person under Fastbeck's command relieved that they never had to follow any of his orders into combat. Still, the purpose of the mission was never lost on the grounded flight, Louis. Arm the Matsi resistance, 
train their leadership, teach the civilians how to defend against the more advanced, but still largely 19th century fighting force sweeping across Mabenda. He's forced 5,000 international peacekeepers with 21st century equipment kept the nation in an uneasy truce. But when those numbers fell to a tenth of that within the first year, the terrorist-backed puppet government tore through UN positions to engage civilian targets with fresh Kalashnikovs and truck-mounted mortars. Soon, fighting the good fight against injustice and the sloppy leadership of a bloated Canadian sea cow, War is down. And as the Matsi resistance literally died off, support for the mission became harder to secure. Other well-intentioned invasions were being planned in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Genocide in Africa, McKinnis observed, was no longer sexy enough for the evening news. Victory sells ads, the last correspondent told him on his way back to the airport. Defeat reminds people too much of their own failures. McKinnis could relate to that cynical assertion. When he signed up to serve in Her Majesty's Air Force, he did so at the urging of his great-uncle Sir Belfred Astor, who pulled a few strings to shore up his favourite nephew's references and marks. While McKinnis was a young man from an unremarkable family and of common stock, his great-uncle presented him as a young man of excellent character and limitless potential. Once in, McKinnis brought a level of confidence and skill that made him a favourite among instructors at Cranwell. He was fluent in the language of the air, understood most of the major air battles second by second, and, as the commandant said of him at graduation, could fly anything with wings and a stick, and probably a few things without them. McKinnis was not as well loved by some of his fellow graduates, who found him vulgar and unworthy of the privilege to be commissioned by the same school that ordained future kings and lords. Some did not like him because McKinnis bested them in every challenge put to him on land, sea and air, as these men earned their stripes and honours and politicked their way into positions of influence and power, they found it easier to meddle in the career of a man who had no interest in anything but serving his queen and country from the air. Flash forward a handful of years to find McKinnis driving a truck down a road lined with bones, and a million ghosts to follow him home to Ivaness and the next humiliation. Someone on the radio distracted McKinnis from his meditations. As we get closer to the airport, expect hostile action, no? Before picking up the handset to his radio, McKinnis spoke in his mind. Really, mate? You think they might throw a few fooky rocks at us on their way out? Kick us in the softies? Oh, bloody brilliant you are. I'm ashamed my granddad died in foy trying to save your thick fripperty arse. He keyed the microphone and replied, Aye, expect a few parting gifts from the locals, but steady on and we'll be in the air within the hour, people. Major General Fastbeck had to pipe up as well, you are not to engage the zombie forces under any circumstances. We are under a flag of truce, and President Housie has assured our safety. But they're probably going to make a good show for the international media. Don't worry about a few stones. Keep your heads down and steal forward. Keep your head down? That should be the title of your fucking biography, you big fat bag of crap. In fact, the plan had already been laid out for their departure. The last elements of the UNAMIM expedition would drive into the airport through a gauntlet of paid thugs 
and a small group of journalists in a truck. After being treated to a show of bottles, rocks, and a gasoline grenade, the media truck would follow the escaping convoy to the main airstrip under military escort. Once near the cargo plane, the convoy would line up side by side, and all personnel were to exit their vehicles. Once assembled and unarmed, President Halsey's motorcade would ride up before the cameras. Each of the senior officers would be greeted by President Halsey to show the United Nations no hard feelings, and ensure them that their plane would not be blown out of the sky before it reached international space. There would be no American escort, no interviews, just a quick grip and grin, followed by a boot to the arse. McInnes stood at parade rest on the flight line, looking at an old dirty C-130 like it was a beautiful woman at the end of the bar. He wanted to buy her a drink and take her home. In the air again, he said, above all this shite and blood and suffering. He wondered if the skipper would let him spend his time up on top. His daydream was interrupted by a large, dark shape eclipsing his view of the beauty on the tarmac. In its place was President Halsey, flanked by two young men, boys really, with submachine guns. Halsey was a soft-faced blob of a man in a thousand-dollar suit. McInnes was to have extended a hand to the President in thanks for his generosity and benevolence. After an awkward moment, he obliged in keeping with his military training. The President accepted his handshake with a slightly skewed grandfatherly smile. In broken English, he said, Englander. Scottish, Mr. President. The President smiled and nodded. Ah, ha-ha, beam me up, Scotty. He put a hand on McInnes's arm, covering the Union Jack stitched to his shoulder. The President beamed brightly as shutters snapped all around him. McInnes blinked. Soft hands, fat face, cruel eyes that have never lifted so much as a hammer or walked more than a few feet to feed himself or make something of his own. He was of the class of privilege, American-educated and cultured in Europe. This great man, victorious general and murderer of an entire people, was nothing more than an uneducated, childish buffoon. And look what a child with power could do when enough people chose to look the other way. Quite. Actually, the people of this country have a lot in common with mine. We know quite a lot about having an arrogant nation sweep through our country and try to burn, murder, and rape our people out of existence. When I meet you in Elser, you'll know me as the one with his boots square up King Edward's backside. And then we'll see how you fare standing naked before a million souls screaming to their lord for vengeance. McInnes punctuated his statement with a prescribed salute, the crisp snap of his right hand palm out from his forehead. Never once did his face betray the venom of his statement. Likewise, the president did not react, except for perhaps a slight hint of contempt. Their awkward moment of silence was filled with the soft, distant click of a hundred camera shutters. Sixteen years before the end of the world, Flight Lieutenant Neil McInnes followed his more senior officers up a ramp into the belly of a plane, officially ending his two-year trip through hell. He wasn't shocked to see government troops seizing the trucks and valuable equipment inside. McInnes was sure that the old headquarters was already burning, 
with different cameras shooting the celebration for next day's news. While the American pilot invited him to the flight deck, McInnes refused to join the crew until they were far away from the burning fields and mass graves of the People's Republic of Mabenda. He closed his eyes but could not escape the rows of mounted skulls rolling past him. He focused on the hiss and groan of the hydraulics and the hum of the bird in flight. He tried to remember a world that did not smell of burning plastic and gunpowder. He tried to imagine a place where the streets were not lined with the unburied victims of executions, now bloated and swarming with carrion in the tropical sun. His greatest fear was to find such a place, only to have death follow him back there.